You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 18th of September 2018 on Monocle 24. Hello, you're listening to Midori House, live from London. I'm Henry Rhys Sheridan. Coming up, another highly public poisoning leads back to Russia. As a member of the Pussy Riot protest group recovers in Germany, we'll ask what game the Kremlin is playing. Meanwhile, the US-China trade war heats up as America unleashes a new round of tariffs on Chinese products. I'll be joined by Carol Walker and Linda Yu to discuss these topics, and we'll take a closer look at a report on what the UK's migration policy might look like after Brexit. Plus, is Emmanuel Macron experiencing a catch-up moment? All that ahead on Midori House, starting now. Welcome to Midori House. My guests today are the political analyst Carol Walker and Linda Yu, broadcaster and the author of The Great Economist, the thinkers who change the world and how their ideas can help us today. Thank you, both of you, for joining me on the programme. In Berlin, doctors treating a member of the Russian protest group Pussy Riot have said it's highly probable he was poisoned. Pyotr Verzilov was rushed to Berlin over the weekend for treatment after falling ill during a court hearing last Tuesday. Uh, Carol, Verzilov was one of the people who invaded the pitch during the World Cup final in July as part of the Pussy Riot protest. Uh, bring us up to speed on what's happened since then. Well, clearly, it does sound as though the latest medical reports coming out from Germany suggest that he was poisoned. What happened is that he has been a consistent and a high-profile critic of President Putin. Um, There was, of course, that uh, highly publicised invasion of the pitch. He was involved in that, but he has continued to protest against President uh, Putin's regime, despite uh, being imprisoned. His supporters and those uh, campaigning against uh, Putin's regime uh, managed to get him out to Germany after he was taken very ill. They were concerned that he had been poisoned. And now doctors in Germany are saying that they strongly believe that that is what has happened. And it does appear that this is yet another case of the Putin regime, the authorities in Russia, making it very clear to anyone who publicly demonstrates against President Putin and indeed causes what they would see as some embarrassment with this pitch invasion, um, that they are putting themselves in a very dangerous position. Uh, And this does appear to be part of a pattern. And the pattern you're referring to, I presume, is, you know, this comes conspicuously soon after Russia's nerve agent attack against Sergei Skripal, a former Russian spy, and that happened in the British town of Salisbury uh, in March. It's been in the headlines since. Uh, Linda, if this is in fact a poisoning... What should we make of the relationship between these two events? It's hard not to draw a direct connection um, in terms of um, really the the latest really frightening, um, I think, weapon being deployed by um, the Russian regime against its political opponents. I suppose one question one might ask is, you know, Poisoning sound like they come from spy novels and movies. They're so high profile. Um, and yet, if they're... if 
you know, as it seems, um, you know, that this is another case of poisoning um, of a political opponent um, by the Russian regime. One has to wonder sort of what next, because, you know, clearly um, the the Putin um, uh, putting political opponents in prison um, isn't enough. And I find this part particularly worrying. Um, and the international condemnation that came after Salisbury, especially when um, the men, um, you know, who seemed as if they had perpetrated the act were claiming they were on some tourist visit to Salisbury. So I just think it's really bordering on um, something that I never thought would become um, any part of uh, normal uh, normal, the way that um, countries operate. Like I said, it sounds like a spy novel. Although it's something that the Russians have done for decades, going back to the early part of the previous century. And I think that what is striking about this is that, uh, as Linda mentioned there, there were these international protests and sanctions which flowed as a result of the, the poisoning of Sergei and Yulia Skripal in Salisbury in the United Kingdom. Uh, the British government has said very clearly that it believes that they were poisoned by the Russian state. It has named two Russian citizens that it believes are behind this. And Russia has since then tried its best to stick two fingers up to the international community to laugh off the suggestions that the Russian state was behind this. And it's clearly determined to make the point, not just that Russian citizens back home can face pretty brutal repression if they dare to raise their voices against the Putin regime, um, but that those who operate against the regime are not necessarily safe if they are abroad. And I think that that is what is particularly sinister about this, if indeed uh, it is uh, the case that this is another another well-known critic who has again been poisoned. Because it goes hand in hand with... Only a week ago, there were big protests across Russia against some of the economic reforms brought in by the Putin regime. On a single day, 1,000 protesters who were out on the streets were rounded up and arrested. And then you see not just this, and not just the Skripals, but of course there was Alexander Litvinenko uh, back in 2006, who was also poisoned with polonium again on the streets of London. And it, it is, I think, quite a chilling side to the Putin regime in, as a demonstration of quite how far it is prepared to go in order to silence dissent. Linda, if this is in fact a second uh, poisoning uh, this year carried out by the Putin uh, administration in Russia, is that a signal that it's getting what it wants through these tactics? I always wonder whether or what the end goal really is, because I think the problem with repressive measures is how far um, there's never really, I think, an end point. If the poisonings don't seem to quiet uh, pussy riot, they've been protesting for a very long time, very vocally and publicly. And they're very good on social media in terms of um, how they feel about the Putin regime. And if throwing them in prison isn't enough, and then now we have a suspected poisoning, I'm not really sure that this would be the the final uh, step taken by any repressive um, system. And I think I find that um, particularly um, concerning. 
And I just want to focus uh, on uh, Verzilov in particular here. Uh, the potential motives for this alleged poisoning uh, are blurry. There are indications that Verzilov might have been trying to further the investigation into three Russian journalists that were killed recently in the Central African Republic. So there may be stuff uh, beyond just a pitch invasion. But whatever the motives are, are you surprised that Verzilov in particular might have been targeted in this way? I mean, I'm not sure how, you know, what a high-profile figure he is in Russia, but uh, it seems an awfully risky tactic for, you know, what gains, potentially, for the government? Well, clearly, there is. There are people in Russia who are prepared to stand up and say that they do not believe that the way President Putin is behaving is acceptable. As I say, this is why we saw so many people out on the streets of Russia, despite the risks, only a week ago. Um, the Pussy Riot, uh, the original group, um, have been imprisoned in the past. Uh, the original group ha have dispersed somewhat. There's now a collective, or known, they call, call themselves the Pussy Riot Collective, who have continued to carry out various activities against uh, the Russian regime. The invasion uh, of the pitch during the World Cup was perhaps the most pro high profile event. Um, but it's very clear indeed that Putin was determined that that would be a success, that that would not be an occasion uh, on which his uh, running of the country was going to be so publicly, um, or a, a, these attempts to at least publicly embarrass President Putin. Um, so clearly, he, uh, Pyotr Vesilyov, is somebody who is well known to the authorities. He's a well-known, high-profile activist. And if indeed he has been poisoned, I think it does just show quite how blatant the disregard is of the Putin regime of any international condemnation that it may face as a result. Linda, earlier we mentioned uh, the sanctions that were imposed as part of a coordinated retaliation, international uh, retaliation against Russia uh, after the Sergei Skripal poisonings uh, in Britain. How successful have those sanctions in particular and the retaliatory measures in general been, do you think, in putting Russia in its place? Well, as Carol said, it doesn't seem like Russia, at least the Russian regime, seems to not um, be that uh, concerned by these sanctions. But we know economically people are. And it's one of the reasons why you do have these protests on the streets in Russia, because that's often what happens with sanctions. It always hurts the... Um, uh, well, the people the most. And the Russian economy is not in a good uh, position. And with the decline in oil prices we've seen really since about 2013, the economy was on a was really struggling anyways because it was so reliant on a single resource. And then these sanctions, because remember there were also the sanctions that came from the Crimea annexation and the Ukrainian um, uh, invasion. And so the combination of these sanctions are that economically Russia is struggling, the people are struggling, and I can't see that um, this latest um, episode is going to, to help because there should be international condemnation, maybe a strengthening of sanctions, in which case I think we're going to see the economy struggle even more. Carol, if you were a dissident within Russia, you're already operating in a hostile environment 
Do you think that this is going to be the straw that breaks a camel's back for, for anyone who's committed to anti-Putin agitation? How much of an effect do you think this is going to have on, on dissidents within the country? Well, I'm sure that there are some people who are unhappy with the Putin regime who will be too scared to go out on the streets, who will be deterred, and that is what the Putin regime is counting on. But I think, as Linda has mentioned, there are many thousands of people who are really struggling. Um, they see the way that the regime is operating, and there doesn't seem to be any sign at the moment that the critics of the Kremlin are prepared to be silenced. Um, they can be deterred to a degree. Um, some people, I'm sure, will feel that they don't want to take the risks involved of speaking out or operating against the regime. But when you have a regime like this, there is no way that any regime can operate and totally silence any of the voices that are raised against it, uh, particularly in the era that we live in of social media, uh, opposition word can be spread through so many different means. Uh, and although this may um, send a warning shot that may perhaps cause some of those who are unhappy at what is going on to step back from taking the risks to themselves and their families, there's no sign yet that the opposition to President Putin's regime is going to stop. Well, we're going to head to the US now, where yesterday President Donald Trump announced a new round of tariffs to be imposed on Chinese goods. But some high-tech devices were conspicuously absent from the list, including several Apple products. Linda, what products have been exempted? And as far as we can tell, why? Well, Fitbit is also one of the companies whose products were exempted from this massive $200 billion worth of taxes the United States is imposing on imports from China. The explanation being given by Barry Kudlow, who um, is uh, one of... Uh, President Trump's advisors is that they communicate a lot with Tim Cook, um, and they uh, and they. I think they were persuaded to uh, to not include Apple products. But if you look at how an iPhone is made, um, it's not alone in having extensive supply chains. So Apple and Fitbit may be exempted, but there's plenty of other consumer electronics where which are produced um, by foreign <coughs> companies using China as a base and then shipped back. Um, to um, the United States, and those will all be affected. So I think the problem when you have such a large tariff that covers now, if you add the $50 billion they imposed earlier this year, half of everything that China sells to the United States, um, it's nice to be exempted, but the effect is going to be economically huge for, for lots of products. Um, so I, I see this as there's no, there's no, perhaps there's no economic reason for exempting certain ones. But I think overall, what's going to be interesting is how the Chinese will retaliate because this is such a big, um, such a big swathe of what it is that they're selling back to America. And, um, and frankly, American consumers are going to see prices rise because unlike the previous rounds, these are on consumer goods. Carol, how does this move fit into Trump's broader trade policy toward China? Well, this is one of the central issues on which he launched his presidential campaign. He promised to protect American workers. Um, but clearly, this escalating trade war 
as Linda has mentioned, uh, can only in the long run harm the American economy. I think the Trump administration has been somewhat buoyed by the fact that the initial round of sanctions, which seemed to be restricted pretty much to steel, um, were uh, worked at least in the favour of some sectors of the steel manufacturing uh, companies. But when you've got this more than $200 billion worth of tariffs which are being applied to handbags and rice and textiles and fish and some fruit and luggage and furniture, uh, that is, as Linda mentioned, going to lead to increased prices for many, many American consumers. Uh, the Chinese have already responded with another $60 billion of sanctions against American goods. That would appear to be simply the next phase of their retaliation. And if you get this, what appears to be escalating war that President Trump seems convinced that he can win, it is inevitably going to harm many, many American businesses. Um, it will, of course, force some uh, changes of behaviour by some of those businesses involved. Perhaps they will try to source their materials elsewhere. Perhaps they will try to source them in the United States. But it's not necessarily going to be easy to do so when you have such a huge economic powerhouse as China. Uh, it's very difficult to see where it all ends. And I think that what's interesting is that, for example, we've had this warning from the IMF, the International Monetary Fund this week saying that it believes that this escalating trade war is the greatest near-term threat to the global economy and that if you have two such big economic powers as China and the United States both erecting protectionist barriers, um, that is not going to help their own economies or, or the wider economies of the areas around them either. Linda, when you zoom out and look at the dynamics of this escalating trade war more broadly, who's got the upper hand and why? I don't think any country has the upper hand, but I think um, if the targeting of uh, these, if the targeting of the, the trade war tensions goes beyond tariffs, which we already see signs um, that it is, then I think it would harm China's growth because China's a middle-income country. It's, it needs um, U.S. technology <laughs> to feed into its manufactured products. Um, it's trying to wean itself off of it by um, implementing the Made in China 2025 plan. But as a country that needs to access global technologies and know-how, I think if the Americans continue to target that, um, that could hurt China's growth prospects. But then China, in turn, could also hurt corporate America. So, for instance... Um, um, by doing nothing, they scuppered a big M&A deal that had been several years in the works between a U.S. tech company acquiring a Dutch chip maker. So all they had to do was just do nothing and didn't give approval for the M&A. And um, that would harm, uh, I think, one of the things that um, the Trump administration is very keen on, which is a buoyant stock market if you start to hit that. And I, I suppose overall, um, both economies have the potential to lose greatly because the world is characterized by global supply chains. And both the China Made in China 2025 strategy, well, to some extent, but certainly President Trump asking Apple to produce the iPhones in America, is pulling back decades of using offshoring to get um, 
cheaper inputs into your product, um, heterogeneity, meaning you have uh, different advantages working in different countries and pushing that all back into your own country. Now, that's something that um, hasn't really been seen um, in decades, if not longer. So that's going to reduce efficiency and that can really harm, I think, both economies. So I would say no one really has the upper hand. They can both inflict a lot of damage, and the most damaging stuff will be overinvestment, not tariffs. You're listening to Midori House here with me, Henry Reese Sheridan, Carol Walker, and Linda Yu. Coming up next, what will migration look like in post Brexit Britain and Emmanuel Macron's catch up moment? Tired of seeing the same few tedious tourist haunts? Well, the Monocle Travel Guide series has stopped off in 30-plus cities and counting in order to dispense advice on travelling like a local. From the finest spot in which to sip a cocktail with a contact, work up a sweat, or take a dip, our comprehensive Travel Guide series are packed with tips, essays, and tidbits for getting the very best from your destination. Monocle's Travel Guide series is published by Gestalten. We've recently added Mexico City and Zurich, Basel, and Geneva to the library, with Athens and Helsinki coming soon, and guides to Chicago and Hamburg following early next year. The Monocle Travel Guide series. Cities are fun. Let's explore. You're listening to Midori House. Still with me are Carol Walker and Linda Yu. In the UK, the government's Migration Advisory Committee has released a report advising members, ministers, excuse me, on what the country's migration policy should be after Brexit. It recommends that free movement from the EU should end. Instead, it says the UK should embrace a Canada-style system with no preferential access to the labour market for citizens of any other country. Linda, is such a system desirable or even feasible? I think probably the biggest difference between where we sit today in the UK and Canada is that we have a legacy of supply links, labor supply links with the EU. And obviously, Canada's system actually, by a lot of accounts, works pretty well. They're very focused on high-skilled migrants. They show no preference to different countries, um, but they don't have a legacy of, of labor that the UK currently has. So I would say, um, looking at what the um, this committee has advised, is chaired by a very well-known labor economist, Professor. Alemani. It includes a number of people, economists and others who've looked at this issue a great deal. I think the elements that they like from the Canada system are that um, you have highly skilled and mid-skilled workers um, who are, so long as they earn £30,000 a year, so it's around $45,000, essentially there are no quotas on a monthly basis as to how many of them can migrate. So you do that based on need. Um, Where I think they're probably going to, where I think there's going to be some debate is around what happens to low-skilled workers. So um, what they're proposing is um, for seasonal workers, farmhands, um, you would have a system where they could uh, come in and and do seasonal work. That's pretty much in line with what the government is thinking anyways. Um, But I think you already begin to see some uh, pushback from businesses who are arguing that what they actually need are hotel workers, are uh, low-end service staff. And this is... area where I think um, there's going to be uh, political tension over um, over this issue. And I would also say it's not just Britain. I was in Paris recently, and France is also 
President Macron has also said he doesn't really want low-wage workers coming in to take work um, from uh, French people. And so I sort of think this whole free movement is being reconsidered. But the I should say overall, the Migration Advisory Committee's assessment is that immigration is good for the economy, and they're trying to do it in a way that um, they think best matches what the UK um, economy needs. Well, yeah, I mean, much has been made of the report's findings in that regard. Uh, so it found that migrants have no or little impact on the employment or unemployment outcomes of the UK-born workforce, uh, and also that there is little or no impact on employment, wages or training. Carol, did we need this kind of analysis in the run-up to the referendum? Well, fascinating, isn't it? Because, it, as you say, you read out a couple of the headlines that immigration does, does not have a negative impact on on unemployment, on pressure on many public services, that it is overall a net benefit to the British economy. And yet we know that concerns about immigration and levels of immigration were one of the key factors in that Brexit referendum. Now, what is interesting is that uh, the previous Home Secretary, Amber Rudd, uh, ordered this report to be carried out, this research, so that a future immigration policy post-Brexit could be informed by some proper research about what the economy needs. Um, What's fascinating is that, in a sense, uh, the committee has almost tiptoed around the whole Brexit issue because what it has said is that there's no need post-Brexit to give any preferential treatment to EU citizens. And indeed, the Prime Minister has already made it very clear that free movement of people uh, from the EU after Brexit will end. Um, But it says, oh, as part of the negotiations, that could actually change. That as part of the negotiations, Britain could offer preferential treatment to EU citizens in return for perhaps greater trade access and so on. So this is the elephant in the room, which the committee seems to have failed to address, that it's all very well about to talk about future immigration policy in a vacuum as though Brexit weren't happening. But clearly what actually happens to immigration policy will undoubtedly be decided in those future negotiations. I think what's interesting here is that there's already been a little bit of a reaction from people who are saying, well, fine, yes, let's uh, have a level playing field so we bring in the skilled workers that we need, that we don't have the lower skilled workers, apart from perhaps those seasonal labourers who would only be here for a short term in any case. I think there is has been some concerns already raised to say, well, hold on a second, are we going to say we've got our doors open for people to come over and take all the really good, well-skilled jobs, um, but then British workers have got to take up those middle and lower skilled workers that are perhaps uh, less attractive and inevitably lower paid. So I think there's some way to go on this immigration debate yet. Finally, on today's show, we're going to scoot across the channel where France's interior minister, Gerard Colomb, has said he's going to quit the government to run to be mayor of Lyon in 2020. The move comes just a few weeks after ex-environment minister Nicolas Hulot resigned live on a radio show over frustrations with Macron's progress on climate change. Colomb said Macron was stuck 
in a ketchup moment. He went on to explain, you thump the bottom of the bottle and for a long time, nothing happens. Then comes a point when the whole lot comes out. Linda, does that make sense? And if so, is he right? I suppose if there are more resignations, that would be the uh, the catch-up moment. But two is already quite a lot. Um, isn't there a saying, if you lose one minister, it's unlucky? What, what, Carol must know the saying. If you lose... To, to lose one is unfortunate. I'm also now struggling to remember the phrase. <laughs> I think if you should... lose two, it's careless. Exactly. Or, yeah. We should stick to condiment-based metaphors, strictly, I think, in this debate. <laughs> well, sorry, I interrupted. To, 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 this has also been likened to, to officers fleeing the Titanic <laughs> if we move on to a different metaphor. And it does seem to come uh, at a time when President Macron is having a lot of trouble. He is. I think economically, um, he promised to turn the economy around um, and unemployment hovers at around 9%. Its popularity has plummeted. I think there's disquiet over um, what's viewed as I think he views it as increasing competitiveness by cutting uh, you know, taxes on the wealthy um, as well as um, trying to implement a lot of the flexibility in the labour market he's been trying to do for years um, but he's also of course touched um, uh, social benefits and other things which um, is causing, I think, a bit of a um, unhappiness, I think, with his regime. So the question is, does, does the interior minister really just want to return to Lyon? <laughs> Did the environment minister really believe in climate change? Or are they viewing the Macron administration as, hmm, maybe I don't want to be part of this? Well, Carol, you know, Macron's leadership style has come under scrutiny from the beginning. How significant do you think these resignations are as a sign of malaise within the cabinet, something broader, something connected uh, to his uh, general approach? Well, I think when you get high profile ministers leaving an administration, it tells you something about what is going on. It comes at a time when Macron's popularity has taken a dive from an extraordinary 60% down to about 30. Um, these are two significant characters who were part of that whole Macron team. Of course, he himself is the powerhouse. The whole movement revolves around him and he's taken some pretty unpopular decisions. But it has to be an indication of where the politics is moving. Moving. If if you compare it to here in the UK, we've seen high-profile resignations from Theresa May's team, Boris Johnson, David Davis, two of the key figures in the whole Brexit movement, have now uh, left the administration. If we look at what happened in the Trump administration, I won't even start the list there. It does tell you something about the leadership, about the politics of that leadership, and perhaps a sign that Macron is in trouble. Well, that brings us to the end of today's show. Linda Yu and Carol Walker, thank you both very much for joining me here at Midori House. Today's show was produced by Ben Ryland and researched by Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Martha Libri. Our studio manager was David Stevens. We've got more music coming up next and at 1900 hours it's Monocle on Design and we'll have more on the day's main stories on the Monocle Daily at 2200. Midori House is back at the same time tomorrow, that's 1800 London time. I'm Henry V. Sheridan, goodbye.